0: Pastor Eric is back with a pre-k? Yeah, I think the preschoolers today. So he's having fun back there. We're so grateful for all of our children's ministry volunteers back there. How about we just start with a prayer, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us here. We thank you that there's no snow on the ground. We we just thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. And we thank you for the gift of your word. That is eternally true. And God, we pray that you will help us build our lives on your word. And show us, even today, how it can be applied to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So question. How do you know if you are on good terms with God? And what I mean by is this. Like, if you pray and ask God. Will you help me? How do you know if he's going to answer and respond and be willing to help? Or if he's just like, I have wasted too much effort on you already. And, and just kind of blow you off. Have you never wondered this? So, Okay, this a few people have. Yeah. Well, it actually happens in, in our the stories that we're going to read there's one guy who cries out to god for help and god helps and the other guy god is like nope so how can we learn from these lessons about what what persuades god to help when we ask for help and when is he not persuaded all right open your bibles to second chronicles chapter 33 second chronicles chapter 33 the stories we're going to read are actually recorded in second chronicles second kings and jeremiah so we're going to read from our paper bibles or your phone bible if you want from second chronicles i'll show you verses from second kings and jeremiah on the screen don't get confused that we're looking at different books of the bible they are all the same timeline okay does that make sense All right, so we're we're in an eight-month series, learning to understand the Bible as one continuous story about who God is and how he works and relates to us and who we are and how we operate and relate to God. And so just a quick, quick review. In the beginning, right, God creates the world it's good. He gives it to us as a gift and we break it. And then we just ignore his rules on how to fix it. And so God finds one guy who is actually willing to listen to him, Abraham. And God says, Abraham, if you follow me, I will lead you to a place where I will bless you and cause you to be a blessing to others. And we talked about how this is actually a promise that God extends to all people. That if we follow him, he will lead us to a place where he'll bless us and cause us to be a blessing. So Abraham follows God to the land of Canaan, um, which is inhabited by a people called the Amorites. And God says, okay, I'm going to give this land to you, Abraham, to your descendants to be their home. But not yet. Not yet because the sin of the people here has not reached its full measure It's just a curious little verse but genesis 15 16 god is talking to abraham He says in the fourth generation of your descendants. They're going to come back to this land For the sin of the amorites has not yet reached its full measure So four generations go by and lo and behold the amor are one of the most vile civilizations on earth They are practicing slavery child sacrifice All kinds of corruption and god says okay now it's time Now it's time and so he empowers abraham's descendants the israelites to drive out the people there and he gives That land to the israelites as their home The problem is after about 600 years or so We reach where we are in the Bible now. And the Israelites are just as evil as the Amorites. They um, are worshiping false gods, engaging in slavery, child sacrifice. Their judges are all bribed. There's no justice. They are constantly in conflict with one another. So the, the nation actually splits into two different nations. The northern half keeps the name of Israel. They are even more corrupt. And so after 600 years, God finally says, okay, I've got to send you away too. And so the, he has the Assyrian army invade and they haul off the people of Israel. And while this happens, Hezekiah is king in Judah in Jerusalem, the capital city, which is like sitting right there on the border. And hezekiah and all the people of judah are terrified that they are next and so hezekiah leads this revival where they clean house of all the idols they reinstate worship of god and um pastor brian Scramlin he preached on this last sunday didn't he do an amazing job yeah Yeah, about instead of falling in fear standing up in faith and there's this morning that Hezekiah wakes up in Jerusalem and the city is surrounded by Assyrians. And he's just like, oh God. And he just falls on the ground before God and says, God, I can't do anything about this, but you can. You can. And God rescues, strikes a lot, almost the entire army dead, and they're saved. So, great revival during Hezekiah's reign. After Hezekiah dies, his son Manasseh becomes king. And, and that's who we're going to read about today. Okay? So that's where we're picking up in Second Chronicles 33. Verse 1. Manasseh. I'll let you guys find it. I hear some more flipping. Okay. Second Chronicles 33, verse 1. Manasseh was 12. 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations God had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected the altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord. The place that the Lord had said, my name is going to remain here in Jerusalem forever. This is where I'm going to meet with my people. In that place, he built altars. In both the courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of ben hinnom Practiced divination and witchcraft saw omens consulted mediums and spirits he did much evil in the eyes of the lord arousing his anger he took the image he had made and put it in the temple of god of which god had said to david and his son solomon in this temple in jerusalem which i have chosen out of all the tribes of israel i will put my name forever i will not again Make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your ancestors. If only they would be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all the laws and decrees and regulations given through Moses. But Manasseh, he didn't listen to that promise from God. Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. I want to show you what 2 Kings also records about Manasseh. 2 Kings 21 says this. The Lord said through his servants the prophets. Manasseh king of Judah has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites. Remember we read about the Amorites before. He's done more evil than them who preceded him. And he has led Judah into sin with his idols. Not only that. Moreover, Manasseh has also shed so much innocent blood, he has filled Jerusalem from end to end. The whole city he filled with innocent blood, sacrificing people to his gods. Besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit, so they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And God sends prophets to Manasseh. He does not repent. He is he is the most vile king and recorded in all of Scripture. And so what is God's response? What is God going to do about this? We'll, we'll keep reading where we left off in Second Chronicles. Verse 3. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army... Commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, they put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackle, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty. And listened to his plea. So he brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew the Lord was God. So afterwards, he rebuilds the outer wall of the city of David. Um, and if you skip down to verse 15, he get, got rid of the foreign gods. He removed the image that he made in the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built. He threw them out of the city. He restored the altar of the Lord and the Satan sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings and told judah to serve the lord the god of israel that's something huge turnaround isn't it here's this guy you cannot say he did not deserve what he got he probably deserved a lot worse than he got And yet when he humbled himself and he cried out to God, God heard, forgave him, and took him back home. Actually restored him. So then Judah has some years of peace. And then Manasseh dies, and his son Ammon becomes king. How do you think Ammon did? All right, so here's Judah's final kings. I had fun creating this graphic. I'm glad you enjoy it. All right, so we have Hezekiah, who was the great reformer, right? Did amazing things. Manasseh, like the worst king ever, but at the end of his life repented. Okay? His son Ammon reigned for two years and was assassinated because he was so horrible. His son Josiah took over, was also a great reformer. Um, Restored the temple did all of these things taught people the word of god and he reigned for 31 years after josiah died His son jehoahaz he had three sons. His son jehoahaz became king for three months He was evil worshiped idols Pharaoh of egypt was allied with the king of assyria and so pharaoh comes Hauls Jehoahaz off to Egypt and puts his brother Jehoiakim as king. He's really a vassal under the Assyrian Empire enforced by, uh, Assyria's partner Egypt. Okay, so Jehoiakim is evil. He does all kinds of bad things. Reigns for 11 years. After he dies, his son Jehoiakim becomes king for three months. At this point, the Babylonian Empire overtakes the Assyrian Empire. Okay? So, they sweep all through Assyria, down through Israel, down to even to Egypt. And Jehoiakim just like, I surrender! <laughs> like, three months into his reign, he's like, I surrender! And so, he's hauled off to Babylon, and the king of Babylon installs Zedekiah as king. Alright? so that's where we are the last king of judah let's read about how zedekiah did if you you're gonna have to flip a page to second chronicles chapter 36 maybe two pages second chronicles chapter 36 and you should see a bunch of headings there there's one that's gonna say zedekiah king of judah verse 11 that's where we're gonna pick up reading okay 2 Chronicles 36, starting with verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. That's the king of Babylon that put him in power. He rebelled against him who had made him take an oath in God's name. Isn't that interesting? The king of Babylon came. Jehoiakim surrenders. So he is taken to Babylon and actually lives a pretty decent life there. Zedekiah is left to reign as really a governor. And the king of Babylon makes him take an oath in the name of the Lord that he will be faithful and serve Babylon. He, however, Zedekiah became stiff-necked and hardened his heart, and he would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which had consecrate which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors. Sent word to them through his messengers again and again He is sending warnings again and again. Why because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place But they mocked god's messengers despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of god was aroused against his people and what does it say and? There was no remedy Meaning no matter what God did, they weren't going to listen. There was no remedy. King Zedekiah, a lot of his story is recorded in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet. And he's an interesting dude because he's having fun worshiping all these idols and doing these things. But he knows this history. And so He kind of keeps Jeremiah the prophet on a leash. That whenever something bad starts to happen, he's like, oh, go call Jeremiah. Let me hear what he has to say. And Jeremiah says, you're sinning. (laughs) You know, I know all these other people tell you God is okay with your lifestyle. It's perfect. It's fine. God is loyal to you. He's going to bless you. But if you actually read the word, you're sinning. And God is not pleased. And if you keep doing it, He's gonna send the King of Babylon back to stop you. And, and Zedekiah's like, okay, just go back to prison. You know? And, and He will do that. And like, His officials will get really, His officials hated Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah always said the opposite of what they would tell Zedekiah, right? And, um, so they would like, we gotta get rid of Jeremiah. And and so like one time they throw him in a well and it's just like mud in the bottom and he's like up to mud in his armpits, just waiting to die. And somebody comes to King Zedekiah and says, you know, that's not right. You really shouldn't treat Jeremiah that way. And so Zedekiah's like, okay, get him out. And, you know, he just... He doesn't get rid of Jeremiah completely, but he just kind of keeps him on this leash and at a distance. And then one day, everything Jeremiah has prophesied comes true. And Zedekiah has the exact same moment that his great-great-grandfather Hezekiah has. Where he wakes up and the city of Jerusalem is surrounded by this massive army. And Zedekiah's like, crap. <laughs> Jeremiah was right. Okay. Um, well, maybe God will do a miracle like he did with Hezekiah. You know? And so he sends word to Jeremiah. And that's not recorded in Second Chronicles, but it's recorded in the book of Jeremiah. So here, this is what happens. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. When King Zedekiah sent to him Bashur, son of Melchizedek, Melch- uh, I practiced this before I came up here too, Melchiah and the priest Zephaniah, the son of Messiah. This is what the king's messenger said. Inquire now of the Lord for us, because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us as in times past, so that he, he will withdraw from us. But Jeremiah answered them, Tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you. I will gather them inside the city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched arm." hand in a mighty arm in furious anger and great wrath I will strike down those who live in the city both man and beast and they will die of a terrible plague After that declares the Lord I will give Zedekiah king of Judah and his officials and the people in the city who survived the plague sword and famine into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon I don't know where the word Babylon went but it's there So back to my original question, right? Because why, why does not God have mercy this time? Hezekiah, we know, was a man after God's heart, right? And so when he prayed, God answered. Manasseh was not. (laughs) We can't pretend like Manasseh deserved God to rescue him. He was awful. He was worse than Zedekiah. But scripture says he humbled himself greatly before the Lord. He humbled himself greatly. He confessed his sin. He asked for forgiveness. And that is what moved God to mercy and salvation. Zedekiah has not humbled himself. He is not repentant of anything. He is just asking God to bail him out. When you humble yourself before God, admitting your sin, and you ask God to forgive you, and you truly are just surrendering and want to follow him, it doesn't matter what your past is. It absolutely doesn't. God, 100% all the time, is going to have mercy, and he's going to meet you at the point of your need and start leading you forward and back home again. But if you just ask God to bless you so you can keep living the way you want to live, God is not interested in, empower, in empowering you to sin. He's just not. If you have self-destructive cycles that you go through in your life, God is not interested in empowering you to keep doing those self-destructive things. And what's interesting is even now, alright, there's no remedy. No matter what God said or did, Zedekiah was not going to repent. The people were not going to repent. There's no remedy. But even then, God still did have mercy. Because look at the next thing that he says through Jeremiah. After he tells them, absolutely, the king of Babylon is coming. He's going to reinsect this place. Furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in the city will die by sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. And they will escape with their lives. God was still having mercy. And basically what it came down to is God saying, look, you can't rule yourself anymore. You can't. That time is over. But I'll let you live under the Babylonian rule. And the Babylonians actually were a more compassionate empire than the Assyrian empire. So anyways, the Babylonians attack. They ransack Jerusalem. They carry the people off to Babylon. Babylon and, and we're going to finish the story in Second Chronicles. If you go back. Uh, let's see. We left off in verse 16. The rest of that paragraph is the Babylonians attacking and they actually burned down the temple of the Lord. Which is exactly what God wanted to happen because it had been desecrated and the Israelites weren't going to burn it down. But God didn't want that place where human sacrifices were being made left. So he had to bring in the Babylonians to do his work. They set fire to the temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and they destroyed everything of value there. Verse 20, it's the start of the next paragraph. Verse 20, he, meaning the king of Babylon, he carried into exile to Babylon the remnant, those who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came into power. So, it's first the kingdom of Assyria, then the kingdom of Babylon. After them comes the kingdom of Persia. Verse twenty-one. This next verse is, I, I think, one a very interesting and completely overlooked verse of the Bible. The land, meaning the land of Israel, enjoyed its Sabbath rests all the time of its desolation. It rested until the seventy years were completed in fulfillment of the word the Lord had spoken by Jeremiah. So, when God originally gave it, the land of Israel to the Israelites as a homeland, He gave them instructions for how they were to care for that land. And one of the things was every seventh year they were supposed to let their field of crops rest. So the land wasn't over farmed. But they had ignored that. And so, God kicked them out for a lot of reasons. But mistreating the land was one of them, and he said, "You have to go away for seventy years because that's how many rests the land has missed. And after the land has caught up on its rest and then restored, and your hearts have been changed, then I'm going to bring you back." Verse. Tw- so, if anyone tells you that God doesn't care about you know the environment, he does. He's the creator. He cares about humans, but he cares about the land, too. All right, verse 22. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. And this is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, said. The Lord, the God of heaven... Which, when it says the Lord, that that's Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem and Judea. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. So after 70 years, they are able to return home. God brings them home. Sometimes... Um, Sometimes we are afraid to fully surrender to God because we're afraid of where he's going to lead us. You know, um, that he's going to change our life somehow and we're going to be miserable. or <laughs> just not as good as we are now, right? And, and so we ha- just have this fear of where God will lead us if we fully, 100%, all in, surrender and just follow him. One of the clear themes throughout all scripture is that if you follow God, he leads you home He leads you to the home your heart longs for It's from genesis to revelation in genesis. God creates a world. That's a home for us Adam and eve are living in paradise in the garden of eden, right? Abraham he meets abraham in his tent and um And then he gives them this land to be their home. When they defile it, he kicks them out. But then when it's ready to be restored, he brings them back home. All the way to Revelation. When humans have made such a mess of this world, God takes whoever trusts in his son, Jesus Christ, and he leads them to a new heaven and to new earth where there is no more sorrow and pain and death. It's all throughout the scripture that God's desire is to lead you to a good home, the home your heart longs for. And where he will live with you. That's the other part of it. That we can't have that good home, the place our hearts longed for, without God. And he longs to be with us. He walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He met Abraham at his tent. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, he had a tent built so he could be with them. When they were in the land of Israel, the, tab, the t- temple was there so he could be with them. When they come back, another temple, so he can be with them. God longs to be with you. That is like half the story of the Bible right there. I'm sorry I like roomed it all for you. Um, the spoiler alert, that's the end. That those who follow him get to go to a new home where they live with God. But the other half of the Bible is how we don't want to live with him. That's the other half. We're all kind of like Zedekiah Where we're curious about God But we want to live our own life and just keep him as a guard dog Who chases away anything that's a threat to our lifestyle God does not want to be your guard dog And he doesn't respond to requests to be a guard dog. He's your heavenly father who loves you and wants to live with you. Wants you to live with him in his home. That is good. If only we wanted to live with God half as much as he wanted to live with us. Because that's our problem, right? We humans we just um we're stubborn. We're so stubborn about this. We want to live our own life in and the world God created without following his instructions. It's kind of like trying to drive a car without following the manufacturer's instructions to put oil and gas in it. Like it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And if you try to fill your car up with maple syrup it ruins it right and that's what so like we just are wired that way to try to run our lives on syrup that tastes good in the moment but inside is just eating away at us And the only way to fix it is to ask God to transform us so that we desire him instead of the syrup. That's the only answer. So during the 70 years, the people of God are in Babylon, right? They're in exile. They've hit rock bottom. God sends the prophet Ezekiel to encourage them. Because God has not given up on them yet. And he gives Ezekiel a vision of how he's going to bring his people back home. Okay? This is the vision he gives Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. This was not just a vision. This was probably something Ezekiel, I mean, he had seen a lot of bones in his lifetime. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry, meaning they had been there a long time. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, "Uh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. He said to me, prophesy to the bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath in come into you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. And then you will know that I am the Lord. You guys God always wants to bring you to life. That's it. He never wants to do anything that is going to harm you. You know, like we have these lies we believe about God's intentions for us. His intentions are to bring us to life. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was this noise, this rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. And I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared them, on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. they like, we're zombies. There's corpses, right? So then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath. The Hebrew word for breath is the same word for spirit. Come spirit from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life And stood up on their feet a vast army And then god said to me son of man these bones are the people of israel And they say our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We're cut off Therefore prophesy to my people and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord, Have that I the Lord have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. He is going to bring them back to life, fill them with his spirit. So they actually desire what is good, and he's going to resettle them back in their home. God's desire is always to bring you to a good home a place where you will be prosper, be blessed, and be a blessing. And he does it by filling us with his Holy Spirit. This is incredibly good news if you know you've made a mess of your life. It's incredibly good news if you know if, if, that you just have this bent towards what is self-destructive, That there's a God who can transform your desires so that you desire what is good and you are empowered to actually do it. And he will raise you to this new life. But what about those of us who haven't made a complete mess of our lives and haven't hit rock bottom? Who are actually fairly comfortable with the lives we've built for ourselves? We're comfortable with the perks. We're comfortable with the things we complain about. (laughs) We're comfortable with the exhaustion and the tension in our relationships, but it's not that bad. My friends, God is an endless pool of goodness. And instead of just soaking your feet in it, dive all in. Dive all into him, because you will never know and experience the unfathomable, glorious riches of your inheritance in Jesus Christ until you do. Next Sunday, um, we're offering baptism. And baptism is a sacred act where we humble ourselves and we ask God to cleanse us of our sin, any shame, any... Anything that's holding us back, apathy, it would just cleanse us and to raise us to new life, full of His Spirit, where we are desire what is good and are empowered to actually do it, and we com- and we live with God, not just on our own, but we live with Him. Baptism is not just a symbolic act; it's a sacred act. And I want to make sure you guys are clear about that. What do I mean? A sacred act is something that God, it was God's idea, he tells about it in his word. And when it is done, God does something supernatural through it. That's what makes it sacred. Because there is supernatural power of God flowing through this act that God prescribes. We as humans cannot do sacred acts. We can only do symbolic acts. So like um, at a wedding where there's a couple and they exchange rings, right? The rings are a symbol of their love and commitment to one another. But like the ring has no power, right? I mean, the ring cannot make them love and be faithful to one another, right? It's a symbol. Baptism is not a symbol It's sacred. It's not just going down in the water to symbolize God washing you clean and rising up to new life. It is sacred. Where God actually does something supernatural through it. Acts 2.38 says this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness, for the cleansing of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. It's not a symbolic act. It's an actual act. You are raised to new life full of the Holy Spirit. If you have never been baptized, you just don't know what you're missing. Living your life out of your own power versus living your life out of the power of God, Jesus Christ and His Spirit. And I just have to ask, is today the day that God is calling you home to make your home with Him? Maybe you've been baptized before, but like the Israelites, you've gone astray. Is God calling you home? And maybe you have pushed the Holy Spirit out into the yard. And God is calling you to live with him. Fully surrendered to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. And you need to be baptized to be refilled with the Holy Spirit again. Is God calling you to make... You're home with him. Next week, we're going to be baptizing people. If you are interested in baptizing, I'm going to be back at the cross. And I'll talk with whoever wants to talk about it. I'll be back there while the worship team sings. Why don't you pray with me now? God, I thank you. We... Uh, We're so easily deceived into thinking that you don't care. That you don't see that you've just kind of written us off and written this world off. God, it's not you who've written us off. We've written you off. And I thank you that the invitation to make our home with you is always there. God, I pray that we would desire to be with you half as much as you desire to be with us. And that you would awaken your spirit in us to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. So we can follow you to the good place you have for us, where you will bless us and cause us to be a blessing. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I just, I just bind the voices of doubt and fear and shame that keep us from you. And pride. Let us listen to your voice alone, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.